We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash hack it out. Just go to Indeed.com slash hack it out right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash hack it out. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Right, guys, Mark Crossford here, Hack It Out Golf Podcast time with myself and Lou Stagner, Scott Fawcett, as always. And we've got a special guest today in Sasha McKenzie. He is someone that I've been lucky enough to learn from through my golfing life. Um, we'll let him explain exactly what his role and who he is, because I just know him as someone who's much cleverer than me. Welcome, Sasho. Thank you for joining us. Hello, you two as well, Lou and Scott giggling there. Um, first this is, off, this is going to be a competition of who can be the most self-deprecating today. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and surrounded by brilliance. Yeah, absolutely. T- tell us a little bit about yourself, Sasha. How would you, what, 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 how would you describe yourself? I am an amateur golfer, I guess. Uh, first and foremost, I, I love golf. Um, I'm a golf biomechanist, um, yeah. but I kind of... Uh, uh, do research in everything from, from putting to footwear clubs, the swing, um, and and a little bit, uh, into stats and speed training. I'm kind of all over the place. Basically, if it's something that can help your performance in golf, I'm interested in, in doing research in it. Uh, my day job is a, uh, a professor at a university in Canada. I teach, uh, biomechanics, advanced biomechanics and quantitative research methods. Yeah. Um, work with a lot of tour coaches like, uh, Mark Blackburn, Chris Como, um, work with some tour players. Um, I've got some educational material out there. I do consulting for ping, uh, consulting for Footjoy, Repsoto, yeah, all yeah, stuff so golf. You, you got a, yeah, all things golf and a lot going on. You've also got your part, or I don't know what your connection is with the stack system as well which is a speed training device as such isn't it um how was that getting involved with that i mean it's it's going well it's there's lots of buzz around online i've got one myself it's it's a great product how have you have you found that that's been different for you isn't it yeah that that's kind of my biggest foyer into being an entrepreneur so um I, I was speed training golfers uh, for a while and started doing research into it about uh six years ago and initially um pitched the idea uh, to a few folks. I don't have the skills to do engineering myself, um, but I had the idea and the plan. I also can't write an app. Um, I've got some Forrest Gump programming skills, but um, uh, Marty Jertson at Ping, who does have engineering skills, uh, was like, hey, this is a really good idea. Um, So instead of me 
um, you know, uh, hobbling stuff together in my garage to use with some tour players. He actually engineered what I had envisioned and uh, we teamed up with a guy to, to build an app and we've got a, a really pretty fantastic product that I'm proud of. It's nice to uh, get behind something that you believe in. Um, so now yeah. we've got a couple thousand users out there using the app and we're, you know, using AI to, to see, make sure the programming is the best for everybody. So it's pretty cool. Fantastic. Yeah, it's a very interesting product. And I, I there's nothing really like it out there of its of its kind, as in people will relate it to the basic swing stick. But it, it, it it's so much more than that, because it's actually part of your brain in an app connected to something I swing or that a user would swing. Um, and to be fair, you know, without, you know, blowing your own trumpet all the time or whatever, you, you know, you, you having your brain in my speed training is something that I would value as much as anything. So yeah, it's, it's a clever system. Um, I think that's one of the most remarkable things, honestly, about as, as awful as social media is, as awful as so much stuff is, the idea that you can have Sasho clearly one of the world's leading experts on all things biomechanics, especially when you narrow it down even into golf more to be able to get access to his brain for a couple hundred bucks. It's a pretty cool deal. I mean, and that's something that it is just interesting, like with decade or whatever, and you think of like, what am I going to leave to my kids or whatever, just something like this, that for, from this point forward, like you'd better be really good at whatever you're teaching because you're always teaching against some of the greatest minds in the world. Once they make an app like that, it's pretty cool to be able to have access to top level competition for, or, or instruction for a very reasonable price. I think that's a really cool deal that yeah. y'all put together. My, the, the little bit that I've looked at it, at least, Sasha. So congrats on that. Cool. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, absolutely. So first question for you, Sasha, then. So who was who your inspirations? Who would you say would be your inspirations? Because... I mean, golf science for me, I was, I mean, before I went to say some of your talks, it would have been people like Phil Cheatham. Um, and then really it was kind of you, it would have been Frederick Tuxon with Trackman as well, a, a kind of in the golf science arena, as I would call it, and certainly more research uh, based. Because obviously us golf pros have for years relied on feel and truths in the dirt and all that kind of rubbish and then having people like you come along has really changed our industry for the better who's been your inspirations to get where you are now well you know starting it off i guess would have been my phd supervisor eric spriggings um so i played uh volleyball uh, at university i went to dalhousie university um for my undergrad and we had a tournament uh, my fourth year um over christmas break in saskatchewan and, and i had no reason to go to saskatchewan know anything about saskatchewan it's really north it's really cold um <laughs> but my honesty supervisor said hey there's this guy out there who's a great you know sports biomechanist you should meet with him while you're out there um and i you know was thinking physiotherapy but i was like oh maybe i'll do some some grad school stuff so I met with him and he at the time was doing lots of research uh, for USA diving um, and gymnastics, and he was doing four dynamic simulations. So you didn't have to um, deal with people. You could isolate variables and you would know, <laughs> hey, look, this is the best way to do a heck vault or, you know, how much time you need in the air to actually complete this dive. And I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. Um, if on his desk, um, when we kind of had a break and a chat, I noticed this paper uh, on the burner bubble shaft. You guys remember that, that shaft? Yeah, the, yeah the bubble I remember that and, one. And it was, um, he actually was trying to hide it from me because he was like, well, you know, it's kind of a side thing, not, you know, like thought that he would, it's kind of a, we're trying to sell each other. 
you know, in that situation. And he's like, I don't know if I want this guy to know I'm doing research into golf, right? I'm going to kind of lose some credibility. And I was like, no, please, I want to know more about this. You know, this, this really interests me. Um, uh, Golf being a a really big industry. um, And, and, you know, you don't just have to focus on the academic side of things. Right. And I mean, 25 years later, I, you know, I've kind of delved into that a little bit, but that really intrigued me. So um, they had this um, commercial where they took the bubble shaft and a regular shaft and they dropped it in a pendulum. Okay. And the bubble shaft under just the influence of gravity would swing faster. So they're like, hey, you'll be able to swing this faster. And as a biomechanist, Eric was like, he was also a very good golfer, um, uh, scratch handicap. He's like, that's not how physics works, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm glad somebody said it because I don't really know much. I was like, (laughs) right. So he said, hey, look, if, if, you know, gravity doesn't do much in the golf swing, if the, the, the source of, of power is going to be the golfer, then if you move mass further from the grip end, you're going to swing it slower. So he, instead of looking at a diving model or a gymnastics model, he developed a little model of a golfer, um, did a four dynamic simulation showing that. Um, and I was like, Hey, this is, this is what I want to do. So I, uh, that my PhD thesis turned into customizing shaft flexibility to a person's swing. So that's, that was my biggest inspiration. Yeah. That would have been 2000. Yeah. That's, that's really cool, man. That's a long time ago. Yeah. 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 So I was, I was learning, um, you know, my, my background is kinesiology, kind of like physical education, but all my side courses were even in undergrad were engineering, math, physics, computer science, um, uh, probably you're probably better off doing it the other way around being a hardcore mathematician and learning a little bit about physiology, but, um, anyway, it, wor- it worked out for me. So, so I was reading about math and doing math stuff. I'd read a math book for my PhD thesis and realize, well, this isn't the math I need to know. Like we were kind of, <laughs> when I was doing the model, I, I didn't know what I needed to know yet to make the model. Anyway, it's enough yeah. of that. So I know you're, uh, uh, congratulations. I think I just saw you won your club championship. Yeah. I saw again. That. I did. Yeah. Back to back. It's a big deal. Wow. That's great. I know you're a good golfer. Were you, when you got into this, were you a good player back then? Or were you more of a, you know, beginner mid handicap type player when you started to do this kind of research? Yeah. uh, You know, I would probably break 80. Um, I would be very, very rare for me to uh, break par for sure. Um, I was probably like a, you know, a six or seven handicap. Um, but I'm definitely, you know, playing my best golf today. So, um, I think 41, I finally became a plus, um, and I'm sitting around a plus two right now. So, uh, definitely my own game has benefited from, you know, what I've learned. Yeah. What, what age did you start golf? Just out of interest. Cause obviously getting to plus at 42, I, I'm I guess going to presume you didn't start till later or you started early and gave up, but what, what age did you start? I, I, I grew up playing golf, um, uh, grew up in Prince Edward Island and I would be, you know, dropped off at the course in the morning, picked up. Okay. So I, I did, you know, the, a membership for the year was $110 and the range yeah. membership was 40. They actually played a McKenzie tour event. Uh, they're playing it right now at, at my home course, um, and PEI. Um, but, um, I was, I never did it competitively. It was more of a hobby. I was yeah. uh, a lot of the other sports were competitive sports. You know, I, 
the, the it wasn't like high level coaching. It, it wasn't really a pathway that seemed a clear way to go. None of my buddies were doing it. Um, so it was, you know, always team sports, track and field, that, yeah. that kind of stuff that I spent my time at. Yeah. Yeah, but you're cool. but you're super athletic. Like literally right now, I still can't remember. Are you actually right-handed or left-handed? I can't remember which one. Left-handed golfer, aren't you? Left-handed golfer, right-handed thrower, writer. Yeah, yeah cool. Because that's what I just remember the one time at Open Forum when I first met you. You were standing on stage, I guess, and you were swinging right-handed. I was like, "Wow, you got a pretty good swing." And you were like, "Actually, I'm left-handed." I was like, "Wow, <laughs> you're clearly having played college sports." And that's one of the things I've always said. Just about when I first met Como playing poker, and then went out for a golf lesson with him the next day. And just learning the, the ball flight laws for the first time, like when you actually just understand what what has to happen between face and path and just all these things as a good athlete like you are, I'm not going to say the game's not that hard, but it's really not that difficult to not hit just materially bad shots. And if you can avoid those, you can get yourself around pretty good. I mean, what what is your handicap both ways? Because I feel like you play a decent amount right-handed still, don't you? I can. Yeah. You know, the closest I came to playing right hand was when I injured my, my left arm. Um, I uh, had a, uh, an accident was uh, dunking basketballs. The rim broke anyway, long story. Um, my wrist was where my elbow was, so I couldn't use my arm for a season. So I spent, uh, this would have been in March and golf season here starts in April. Um, so I spent about three or four weeks trying to decide whether I was going to play with my uh, wife's right-handed clubs. Um, so using my, right hand as my trail hand yeah. or my own clubs um, and use my right hand as my lead hand. Um, so that's as close as I came. I had a little bit more power, a little more speed playing uh, right-handed. Maybe that's um, what I'm thinking about. But no control. Yeah. So, but I, but I, but I stayed as a single handicap uh, that year. I kept my handicap to eight playing with one hand. So that was <laughs> excellent. <mine. laughs> so just, just dunking basketballs. Well, yeah, well, you know, like, like we do. Every, that's what we do before <laughs> pods. Just go out about, and just dunk a few basketballs. Yeah. You're about six foot, aren't you? I'm six foot, but I, you yeah. know, my, you know, I can jump over cars. It's kind well, of, yeah, a, but it was just yeah, casually, hobby. I'm dunking basketballs. Yeah. I just want to get some context <laughs> with people at home that, I'm more of a free point shooter. Than, yeah. Yeah. But, the, the issue was we were actually dunking from the foul line. Um, so <laughs> what? Yeah, that was that's what we're doing. And yeah. and anyway, wow. anyway, yeah. my feet ended up hitting the no, back of the backboard. No, don't gloss over that. Could you literally? You can't dunk a basketball jumping from the foul line. We yeah. got two steps. Oh, I'm I got way more than two steps. It's a, you know, so yeah, it's not. I guess I'm confused. I'm thinking like Michael Jordan taking off from the foul line. You're not. No, no. That. You're not taking off from that. Yeah. yeah. Running and jumping from the foul line. And you can dunk it. Well, I came really. <laughs> not that <laughs> no, one time. No, you have to play golf with one arm. <laughs> I think it's That's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's it a, didn't work out very well for me. I, I can jump off really tall buildings. I smashed my head in doing it, but I can do it. You know, it's like we can all do anything, can't we? Dude, that's um, incredible, yeah. Sasha. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, let's go back to golf science then, Sasha. Yeah. I mean, how do you feel like it's changed over the years? I definitely see it much more. Well, I say the mainstream. I don't know where the mainstream is in golf anymore because there seems to be different levels of it. But it definitely seems to be much more openly talked about and involved 
than ever before. And what's interesting, I think, just as a side note with that, Ping's got the ping, he's got the ping putting lab as his background, we can see on the Zoom here. Obviously, golf science has been there for years to a certain extent. I mean, the person in the in the picture behind you was an engineer, in effect, using maths and science and numbers to build clubs. But how do you feel like it's changed over the years? Um, well, in golf, yeah, golf, in golf. science. Um, well, I, I mean, it's becoming uh, more and more critical to to success. I think. Um, I think you, you at the at the highest level where things tend to be measured and where it's easiest to measure because most of the stats are. Um, you have fewer and fewer players that are going to succeed without taking advantage of that knowledge that's that's available in, through through golf science. That whether it's through a coach they have. Um, or an app like Decade or, you know, some of uh, Strokes Gained, like, you know, for Mark Brody's stuff, um, or getting fit for a putter. Um, I'm sure in 1970, you could go down the range and everybody could swap out drivers and they, you know, the spins would be all over the place and they wouldn't know any different. In fact, they probably did that, right? They, they, they didn't really probably know how far their ball was going, you know, like from, from club to club. And, um, it's kind of like where baseball's at now, right? It's like, oh, I'll try your bat. Um, but now if you went down the range and everybody, you know, tossed all the drivers in a pile and they all just grabbed a random driver, you would see everybody's distance would drop 10 yards because it's not, yeah. it's no longer yeah. fit to them. Guys are spinning it too much and yeah. guys aren't spinning it enough. Um, so, uh, I, I think that, um, a player coming along and not taking advantage of golf science is going to be pretty rare. So I, I think it's just you know, it's essential to be playing, playing the best. Yeah. I mean, I've seen it change. Yeah. I've seen it change even at my level for teaching everyday golfers. I've seen it change through the coaches that I will interact with who would have very much been stood on a range of the hands on the pocket in their pockets, you know, just looking for shot shapes and saying whatever they could to get through that lesson to now there's a lot more, tech that allows your average golf coach teaching a, a golf course for the people listening to this pod that gives them um you know ball data club data and even body data now you know there's systems out there that are being found in more um places even things down to like that you know the um i've got the wrist sensor what's it called hack, hack motion hack motion sensor which gives me awareness of people's movements that i would really struggle to have without that sensor i mean I, i've seen it definitely bleed into everyday use more. I think it's still got a long way to go. Um, how has it changed for you? Because I know you do talks and you talk with lots of professionals. You're very generous with your time at helping us try to understand what we're meant to understand more. H- how has you seen it change with golf pros? You know, your average golf pro. So the amount who come to the seminars or are more willing to listen or even ask you questions now. There must have been a bigger uptake from the interesting pros over the years, has there not? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's, it's a, at least I hope there (laughs) are. There has been for sure. Well, you know, you're like dying off eventually. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, you, 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 you always had guys like like, uh, a Chuck cook or a Mike Adams who really gravitated towards wanting to know science. Um, But now uh, there, there are definitely more of those, you know, even someone like, like it's your Chris Como, Mark Blackburn. Um, they both got force plates. They both got, yeah. uh, you know, Chris has got gears. Mark's got the, um, uh, electromagnetic system. Um, uh, but, but then everybody's got a launch monitor, right. Yeah. Or you, you got someone who might be, you might, might be like a Scott Hamilton who 
might get pegged as well. He's, he's not really super sciencey, but he's got every bit of science equipment that you can find. So um, there's, there's just way more guys that, that are into it um, and using it. Can I yeah. ask you a question along Absolutely. those lines, actually? Because I've hit, do, do you, before I throw you under the bus, do you have a deal with any of the force plates people that I should or shouldn't ask a question along these lines? Do you? No, no deals. I wrote the, the software for the gas force plates that allows you to track center of mass. But um, well, so, so my question is along the lines, whenever I went over to Como's house a couple months ago before having my surgeries to hit a few balls to actually get my first data ever on force plates, like I'd never hit any on them before. And Brian, now uh, Bryson's caddy was the guy sitting there running it for me. And I was surprised when I got on the dual plates and again, I just feel I'm asking this question because I feel like we had to be doing it wrong. How short of a time they gave us between, all right, you set still and then now swing. Is, were we doing that wrong? Or because it literally was so we couldn't get our time. Like I could, if I was 10 miles an hour slower because you're just standing there all of a sudden it's like swing. And I just it, found that super impossible to do. Is that how it works? Or are we doing something wrong? Uh, no. Well, for the setup they have in gas, the shorter the time um, but between when they zero the plates, when you're quiet and they zero the plates and you swing, the more accurate the data is going to be. Um, but in, in my lab, um, you know, I, that's not an issue. So you can it, you can do all the wiggles and waggles and everything you want. Um, I'm, I'm not exactly sure the settings they exactly had going in Chris's lab, but it shouldn't necessarily need to be if you shouldn't feel rushed that's not it a, definitely was rushed it was definitely like and then again like i just was like i was telling brandon like i feel like we have to be doing something wrong here you know the, the one question, those, sorry scott come on, carry on. oh i was gonna say the one question that i really had from a uh, a selfish standpoint here is as i come back from my surgeries and i'm trying to regain and then really start taking this to a comical level hopefully like bryson is with distance I've watched, you know, Michael Finney has that 40 minute uh, video that's out online. I should say 40 minutes, a $40 video that, uh, that is Mark Blackburn that I really actually enjoyed. And one thing that I feel like I've always been personally bad at is waiting, unwaiting and re-waiting. And I don't even know the, the proper language there, but I know obviously you've got your forces in motion course with Phil Cheatham. And then you've mentioned Blackburn a few times. I feel like I don't go up and down any in my swing. I just feel like, again, like how you can jump on a weight on a, on a, on a scale and make it go from 200 pounds to 400 pounds or whatever that number is. I don't feel like I do that enough. Is there a feeling that you try to get people to feel an unweighting of the lead foot and then stomping like that Mike Adams, that, that pedal that he's got is, is that, am I thinking of that correct? That that's a huge source of power. And if so, how do you get that? Yeah, you you are well. I mean, in terms of your ability to to find fairways, I probably wouldn't change much of what you're doing, Scott. I've seen your swing; it's quite smooth, and you you do stay pretty level. Um, but if if you do want to, you know, get some more distance, then the only um, way to, to make the people on Twitter <laughs> mad is by hitting at 360 yards on the seniors. <laughs> I'm I'm not going to lie; that's factoring into this. <laughs> yeah, you know, then to to to, to feel like you're you're squatting a little bit just as you're finishing your backswing. Um, you know. Uh, um, being, um, coordinated like yourself and knowing what instinctively, what you need to do to hit the, the ball out of the center face, the driver, if you put yourself in a position where your hands are going to be too low, you know, uh, with about 0 0.06, 0 0.07 seconds left to go, you will jump up with that lead leg to make sure that you, you make center contact. So if you, if you can allow yourself to squat a bit at the end of your backswing, 
right? And then you, as you start down, you're like, shoot, I'm going to bury this thing in the ground six <laughs> inches behind the ball. Um, it's actually something that I thought uh, that, that, that one reason Pete Cowan had a lot of success um, t- telling some players to hit down um, is that they would actually start to hit down earlier in the swing, but then they'd real instinctively be like, well, this is going to work out for me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they'd actually really rip up and left. Um, and, and that works, works great for, for a lot of, for probably all the players that he, you know, works with because they're not going to bury the club, you know, six inches behind the ball. So the thought for them to hit down, um, is actually a great one because then they don't really do it through impact, but you know, yeah. um, you, yeah. got to be careful, Scott, as well. You, I mean, the beauty with a play is that you can measure where your power sources might be coming from. You know, you, some people might have a main power source, which is more horizontal than vertical. Like I, I get a lot of verticals in my motion, for instance. And if I go more horizontal, I get a different shape but, and I get a little bit better contact sometimes, but I, I lose a bit of power. You, you've got to just dial in what would be your best combination of powers to use. Is it, well, it you might find a dome vertical doesn't speed you up anymore. Well, it, and it that's, it. that's kind of my point is that I, I can't quite, and I've always been a, a flat trail foot guy and I'm not a guy that's coming up onto my toes. I'm not posting my left front leg. So I do feel like I'm more, I'm not up and down, but when I'm really trying to think of getting back into the mid one twenties, even higher, I really feel like that whole idea. And again, cause whenever I've done it, screwing <laughs> around, just trying to swing as fast as I can, it's been because I've got that, what Bryson was talking about the US open of trying to rip it up and then rip it down that like that feel, I do get another four to five miles an hour of club head speed. Again, I have no idea where it's going, but I'm like, I haven't trained with it. And then in watching a number of Sasha's videos online, he talks about like, midway through the backswing is really when that like set back in starts back in. Is that correct? Is there like a recentering? Yeah. A spot roughly like arms at parallel or something like that. Sasha, like where should that transition kind of be starting? Well, that's where it's going to feel for you. It's going to feel much earlier than it, than it probably is occurring. So you're going to probably have to start to feel like, Oh, I've got a lot of backswing left to go when you start sinking. Uh, You know, an, an important thing to remember is that we're not actually trying to maximize uh, the amount of angular momentum we get from the ground. You, you can have too Define much. Define that so, for us. So, so you, you don't, <laughs> you know, some people call this semantics, but you don't get any power from the ground. Um, the ground cannot do work on you. There has to be movement between the, 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 the point of force application and the ground doesn't move with your feet. But what the ground does do is it changes the amount of angular momentum in the system. And then you want to get as much of that angular momentum out from the body into the club. So that's what I'm saying. Define angular momentum for Angular me. momentum is just how fast you're rotating. Um, multiplied by- Clockwise. Your, yeah, multiplied by how your mass is distributed in your body. So you, your inertia, you have a ton of inertia. Um, is that uh, a fat joke? No, that's no, that's, that's, uh, that's like, for a golfer. You, you are, you're good with it. You got inertia on your side, Scott, versus, uh, you know, like Morikawa. Um, but, but you can have too much. Right. You, 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 we only have 0.3 seconds in the downswing to get the angular momentum that we developed uh, from the ground out to the club. Um, and if, if, if you look at how much angular momentum a figure skater has doing a quad, way more than you do in a golf swing. So you can, you can overdo it. And it's, it's quite possible, uh, like, uh, you know, working with um, uh, Fitzpatrick. Um, he doesn't have a, a lot of angular momentum in the frontal plane. 
Um, and it was like, okay, well, you know, uh, maybe that's something we could work on. But I didn't think that was a good idea to increase that because he's got some very unique things in the swing that we didn't want to mess with. He feels comfortable doing movements that increase um, his horizontal plane angular momentum. So, hey, let's just keep increasing that. Um, let's not rework a pattern. He's not a long driver. He, he could swing at 130. Um, you know, if he gets up into the low 120s, that's, that's, that's all we need. So we don't need him swinging with it. Maybe you could swing 145. Um, but we only need you swinging probably 130. What yeah, what yeah. is he right now? Is he 114 ish, 113, 14ish? He, he he can in the stack app he can get it up to 120 pretty pretty easily. Um, yeah. I, I have a, I have a question about and as the least knowledgeable swing uh, swing guy here on on the call about Scott's swing. Scott asked if ground forces could help him swing faster. So if you've seen Scott's swing, to me, again, not being the most knowledgeable swing guy, it seems pretty short to me. And I remember you you posted some things, Scott, where you were going all out, not caring <laughs> oh, yeah. where you made contact. Uh, just trying to generate as much speed as you could. And you were up high 120s, but you were still really short, like not even getting close to parallel with the club at the top. Would somebody like Scott gain more speed by having a longer speed? And I don't know if the correct way to say it is a longer hand path. Yeah, for sure. Uh, especially because he has a decent golf skill level of coordination. It would, you know, wouldn't take much um, work for him to, you know, adjust to have that coordination with a longer swing. Um, a, the perfect example of that is Tony Finnell. When I would That's do, literally what when, I, when yeah. I would go around, you know, four or five years ago, and I would give examples of Bubba Watson, and Tony Finnell, two ping players, and I would say, you know, two different ways to get to 122. But I'm like, look, Tony's leaving 10 miles an hour on the table, and people would, you know, laugh at me, and, and I would say, you know, longer hand path, you get more speed, and they would use guys like John Rom. And then, you know, here comes Tony Finno. You know, like starting a couple of years ago, he would start letting these swings loose, where it's like he gets his hands high, and it is there's 10 miles an hour, boom. Um, you know, so uh, without without a doubt, Scott Scott would be able to swing swing faster. It's interesting, you know. John Rom came out just a couple of weeks ago talking about um, some ankle issues he had. He had a club foot, and I I disagree. You know, I, ah, we don't need to get into that. I guess I didn't I didn't really understand the comment. A shorter swing is going to be inherently more violent if you want to generate. What he's doing is amazing. That swing, getting 184 miles an hour of ball speed. Um, I mean, it's I wouldn't like a change. Jamie Holmes. Yeah, but even even better. And I, yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't change anything. That is gold. You know, in terms of repeatability and under pressure, being able to just the swing's over before you get a chance to <laughs> do anything bad. Um, but if he wanted to get to 200 mile an hour ball speed, he should be able to do it. If he wanted to get 185 mile an hour ball speed with less stress in his body, he'd take a longer swing. Mm. The, the one way that I've been trying to, because I do agree that the main thing back whenever I was really getting after it about this time last year was I was trying to get that longer swing. And one of the main reasons, that's the whole reason I was talking about unweighting the lead foot. What I'm really saying there is trying to let the lead foot drift more like a Bubba and then allow me, I don't know if that's my trail shoulder getting more internal or externally rotated, but getting, that's what really keeps me in is this shoulder staying locked kind of forward and letting the lead foot drift up and that trail shoulder drift around. And then that's how I can get a longer swing. W would that be part of what I'm talking about? Am I just really looking at it the wrong thing? That's not about unweighting. That's just about a longer swing. 
Yeah, but it's also it's going to promote the on waiting as well for sure. Um, it, it, you're going to, you're going to get, uh, both there. Um, you're going to get a longer hand path, plus you're going to, um, develop higher ground reaction force under that lead leg, um, at about shaft vertical in the downswing. You know, there's no, there's no secrets anymore. Uh, it, you just, every long drive guy does the same thing, you know, yeah. 15 yeah. years ago, um, you, you would have guys like Jason Zubak who might have a more of a JB Holmes type swing. Um, eh, like, all the long drive guys now wrap the club around as far as their body will allow their hand path is crazy. And it's just, it's, there's no, it's, you want to hit it far? Just watch what they're doing. Yeah. Know? Yeah. hundred percent. Lou, you got any swing questions? It's turned into a lesson. I mean, <laughs> normally we talk about my golf game here. We, we don't say. focus on Scott. So I'm getting a little jealous. Hey, I can't I'm, I'm I've had two surgeries. I had to shut up all year, man. I'm, I'm, I'm itching to use this simulator. I was, yeah. I was literally expecting you just walk off Lou. Like, why are we not talking about my swing? Yeah, no, we normally talking- we, we focus a lot on trying to help me as being the worst golfer on the show. So uh, hey, I'm, I'm about but, to mute this and go hit some balls while y'all finish this thing. Yeah, up. yeah perfect. <laughs> Um, so you know, final, sorry, go on, Lou. You got no, no, I wanted to, to ask yeah, a, a little bit more about the stack system. So um, for people that haven't seen it before, um, give us kind of an overview of what it is, how it works, and then talk about some of the, you know, real world benefits you've seen from players that are using your, your system. So I, I think it's um, doing, um, manipulating the speed at which you're swinging an object, um, but still using maximum effort is the most efficient way to gain club head speed um, in terms of time. And uh, we all are short on time. So the philosophy is you, you want to be using maximum effort, um, but swinging uh, at a certain percentage of your maximum under and over. Um, and then it's about, uh, manipulating the weight that you're swinging in order to achieve those percentages of your maximum swing speed. So the variable is not the weight. The variable is how fast you're moving. And, and if you are swinging, it turns out that if you swing things slightly heavier then the forces you apply and the forces that are required from your body still at relatively high speeds are being stimulated. So that's going to slightly increase your ability to apply force. Um, if you swing things that are Uh, lighter, you will swing faster. And that stimulus is going to um, act on the properties of your body that um, produce, uh, you know, faster muscle contractions. So it's, it's, and you want to keep a similar enough motion. So if you go too heavy or too light, then the improvements you see um, aren't aren't as high. And all this research uh, stems from my, my track and field background (laughs) and research in track and field, you know, being, um, a multi-events person, I would be at, you know, doing, um, let's say overspeed training, <clears throat> excuse me, overspeed training. I'm 180 pounds. My training partner's 220 pounds. We both run the hundred meters in 11 seconds. We're towing very different weights. Um, but to try and target the same percentage of our speed, or we're getting pulled by different forces to get to a certain overspeed level. Um, so it's, it, it, it's, a, it's, that's the philosophy. So we have a single stick where you can adjust the weights, um, in about 10 gram increments. And the, the biggest part about it is, is the app. So when I would work with, um, players, I would set up a program and I would have them go do the, the speed training and they would record the speeds they were swinging at. And I would need to know what those speeds are in order to be able to figure out what weights to use. And then after every workout, you'd have to adjust 
for the next workout? Are they getting faster? What weight should you be swinging uh, tomorrow? No different than if I gave you this, people can relate more to this. If I said, all right, um, we're going to go do a weight training program. And I want you guys training at 80% of your one RM. Um, and Scott's going to be doing, uh, six reps with 80 pounds and Mark's going to be doing six reps with 60 pounds. That's what I want. That's going to be, you know, where you're going to reach failure. But then, uh, we go a few workouts in and all of a sudden Scott grabs the 80 and he's like six, seven, eight, nine reps. Well, now I need to adjust that weight. Um, he needs to go heavier. And so what the app is constantly doing, it's trying to target a certain percentage of your swing speed for that set. And it will constantly adjust those, um, those weights to make sure you're, you're targeting that. And it's giving you feedback and how fast you're swinging. It's tracking your rest and, uh, rest, uh, times between sets and reps and days tells you when to work out. Um, and then the coolest thing about it, and this is where, um, the AI part of it comes in is that if, when I was doing, when I was starting to do research with this, the initial studies were like, okay, um, how, how heavy can we make stuff before it's no longer effective? And it turns out that if it's so heavy that you're swinging slower than 90% of your maximum speed, then it's not very effective. It's too heavy. And then if you're swinging faster than say 120%, it's too light. It's not very effective. You'll still get a little faster. People that just swing anything, you'll get a little faster, but you won't see the same increases. And then this is with like, you know, 20 to 30 people in a study. And then I do another study with, you know, another 20 to 30 looking at, should you do heavy sets before light sets? How much rest did you have? And then, well, let's do another study. You know, should you do reverse swings? Uh, that, and it's very iterative and it takes forever. Boom, fast forward to 2021 with an app and thousands of users. Um, and now I know their exact rest. And if you take a week off, and uh, you don't do the workouts, and then I scrap you from the study. It doesn't matter. I've got 500 people like uh, you know doing the study. So then we can start to see, well, hey, what variables for these particular people result in the greatest improvements in club head speed? And what we're getting into now, because people are getting into their third and fourth programs, something that no academic research really has, has access to is Usually the, the, when you do uh, strength training studies or any kind of conditioning studies or intervention studies, it's always a one shot. Hey, let's take these people. Let's see what this, what happens if we do this? Do they lose weight? Do they get stronger? Yeah, but it, we don't just do stuff for six months. We do stuff for 10 years. So what happens? Great. You've got stronger. Well, what program should you use next? Right. And so now we're getting data on, okay, now you've changed. Now you're faster. You've gone from 100 miles an hour to 110 miles an hour. What's the best program for you now if you're 43 years old and a female and a four handicap and swing at 105 miles an hour? I don't know if you know Lou's journey or not, but he's gone from like 99 to 120. It's been pretty damn impressive. And one of the main things he's always talked about is like time between trials being one of the most important things as opposed to like some of the other swing speed companies just have you just swinging them as fast as you possibly can repeatedly. And I feel like I've seen in your app that you've got a timer where you do put 20, 30, even 40 seconds maybe between uh, yeah. swings. Is that correct? Like what's yeah. your science and yeah. thought so, behind that? So, so, you know, like two seconds or essentially enough time to just gather yourself and swing was not effective. Um, people got fatigued. It felt like they had a great workout. Um, but two things would happen. You could see by the end of the workout, they weren't swinging as fast, which isn't good. Um, and also when you start to look at that over time, after four weeks, they're not gaining as much speed as other people. If you go to 60 seconds, it's just as effective, but boy, is it annoying. <laughs> um, because the workout takes forever. 
Yeah. Right. So, so then the key is to, okay, obviously three minutes between reps, you, you won't even do that because it's just taking too much time. So then you go, okay, six. But would that not- be optimal if you could? Just uh, as a guy who's no. just sitting in my office, like, I'm just wondering, like, no. what is, because I can t- go take a swing and come back and. No, it, it's, it, it showed no more benefit. Um, it just took way longer. Um, okay. Um, you know, if you were doing some, but there is some evidence, you know, some of the extreme Olympic weightlifters that have crazy, crazy high volumes, um, it, you know, there's been some success showing that, yeah, you do like one power clean and then you like the, at your near your max, and then you rest like five minutes, you know, um, or in track and field, if you're, this isn't a single rep, but you might do a 40 as fast as you can and wait 25 minutes. Um, so, but you don't need with, with golf and the way the implement is. Um, so it, it could, the optimal could be 15 seconds. It could be 25 seconds. We set the, the rest at 20 seconds. Um, and if you go, you can go sooner or later and, um, we'll know that. So the app tells you how long to rest, but if you shorten it or lengthen it, the app records the actual rest. So now I That's can look awesome. at, I can look at, go in, I've got, you know, the, all, all the data to see, right. Well, let's sort by who's had short rest. Let's sort by who had long rest and let's try to break it down into groups of people who are similar and let's see if there was a difference. And that's the AI kind of, kind of working at that. And then, and then set rests are uh, three minutes. Yeah. So in effect, it's getting cleverer and cleverer the more people use it, hasn't it? Basically it's, it's growing. It's, it, it's just going to keep getting smarter in effect. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'll come back in five years and be like, oh, wow, I would never have done that with a uh, training program, but people are getting faster at just tweaking variables. And yeah, um, yeah, it's smart. Definitely. Um, So last question then, just just wrap it all up. Unless Lou has any more swing questions. Keep Sasha all day. (laughs) I got got another one or two also. (laughs) Have you got in fire boys? If you've got a question fire, well, who wants to go? Yeah. So I'll I'll go first. So I've seen a ton of of your videos out there and the one that I'm going to refer to, you may or may not remember it back in 2015, I think it was at met section event yeah, it was putting. about putting heads yeah. up putting yeah um, there's a lot that i took away from that video i'm curious if you've done any additional research or if heads up putting has been uh, you know something that um, you still talk about you still think is beneficial um oh. have you gone beyond that uh, talk in 2015 i assume oh, that just yeah. means looking at the hole like what is heads yeah. up yeah. putting? yeah yeah so i'll yeah. describe heads up putting. i put heads up myself um um, and I'm, I'm act usually positive strokes game putting most days. Um, like in the club championship, that was definitely the, what separated me, um, was my putting. I'm not saying I'm an awesome putter just relative to my game. It's, it's, it's a strength. Um, so heads up putting Scott is, um, you do everything the same, right? So you're, if you, the way you normally putt now, nothing would change. And if I asked you as your caddy, Hey, you know, how do you read this? And you might say inch outside, right. And, and that, that you, right. That might, that probably means that as you're impacting the ball, you would, if we pause the putter there, a laser line coming out of the putter, the face would, would cross the hole an inch outside, right. Right. That's if I pointed to a spot in the ground, Hey, like inch outside, right of the hole, you'd be like, yeah, that's where I want to, my initial launch direction of the ball. That's where I want to start it on. We're on the same page here. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So your routine stays exactly the same. When you'd put your head down to make your stroke, instead of making your stroke, you then trail your eyes from a picture of that laser line going out of the face of the putter and you laser line, watch it all the way. And where that laser line passes closest to the hole, 
That's the spot you stare at. And then you just think I'm going to roll the ball over that spot while you're looking at that spot. So if it's, if it's, you know, four feet of break, then you kind of stare out in the ether and you just pick a, an imperfection in the green could be a shiny bit of water, a little discolored blade. And you think I'm just going to roll the ball over that spot. If it's uh, inside the hole, then I will pick, like if it's a six footer and it's, I always pick a specific spot. So it could be like, you know, five millimeters uh, from the middle of the cup. And I think I'm just going to hit the ball right over that spot. Um, but everything else in your routine stays the same. And so all the I, way on every putt, all the way out to 50 feet. And yes, exactly. And, and to the point now where if, if you guys grabbed a pen or something on your desk and you said, all right, I'm going to throw this into my waist waste bin. And I said, you got to look down. It would feel very awkward. You want to stare at your waste bin. If I've got a sketchy lie against a collar or my feet are awkward, you know, if I'm gonna, like off the green sure. and I'm like, look, okay, I, I, I got to look down at this ball because contact, contact is premium is here. Yeah. I feel it weirds me out. Cause I'm like, it's like shooting a basketball, the same feeling as shooting a basketball without looking at the hoop. It's like, why am I, none of that information down at the ball changes. It's the same on every single putt. All the information that matters is between the ball and the hole. That's what you want to be taking in, especially that distance. So when I first started doing the research, um, it, I broke putting down into uh, four skills that are under the control of the, the golfer, right? You've th things that, that determine where the ball goes. Um, you have face angle at impact path at impact where the ball hits on the face and the speed, um, things like loft and attack angle. Those are very secondary. You can really manipulate those and not really see much change. So of those four things, I, I you know, instead of, there's some few studies done in the sixties and seventies where it was like, Hey, let's look look up, let's look down, but it was very undefined. So I wanted to measure what happens to those four skills when you putt heads up. Theoretically, your variability in what I would call, you know, the, the quality of impact path, spot on the face and face angle should get worse. Hey, I'm not looking at the thing I'm hitting. The near target is the ball, but your speed control should get better right? Because then there's a theory by a guy named Lab who put out, and it's, it's more than a theory. As soon as you remove your eyes away from the, that distant object, the one you're the far target, as soon as you take your eyes off it, your memory of that distance decays exponentially. Um, and, and that's why if you look at really good putters, uh, often do this like Aaron Baddeley, his stroke starts before his head even gets back to the ball. Yeah. Um, and he's probably not doing that consciously because he's like, I do not want to forget that distance. Um, so I started doing studies where I would measure those four things. Um, and speed control is way better. And it turns out that the first study I did was what was uh, straight flat putts. And there was no difference heads up, heads down there was no difference with straight flat putts. But then I started thinking, okay, well, most putts aren't straight and flat, <laughs> right? Yeah. We got some break. So then the subsequent studies, I started introducing break. I've got a green in my lab with um, uh, an adjustable table um, and all of a sudden, then you started seeing separation because speed becomes so much more important. And 80% of the golfers that have come through my lab who've never putted heads up and only get a half hour of practice, putt better heads up. Um, <laughs> it was, it was very, very clear. And I've run myself through 20 <clears throat> different studies. Cause usually when I, you know, have my students doing, I'm like, all right, I'll be the first guinea pig. 
And it's, it's usually, it takes about an hour. It's like 48 putts. Sometimes I do 96 putts over several days. And you never really know with putting. Did I do better with that putter or this method or that method? You yeah. never really know. You have to, because you're, you're in the moment, you have to crunch the stats. And every time I'm better heads up. And what's really interesting is that certainly impact spot, because it's more about variability than anything. So what I would, the way I set up my studies is I'll have like, uh, at least four putts, sometimes more, sometimes up to, up to, um, 20 putts, but they're all the, it's the same putts, right? Cause you want to take out green reading ability. You want to be like, they know the same putt, you just put them in a different order. Yeah. And so it'd be like, go hit this eight footer. Now you walk over this other section of the green, hit this 11 footer. Now go hit this one. That's 14 feet. Now let's go. But you eventually cycle back around to that other one. Right. So, so you can compare apples to apples. So you know that it's not green reading. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I want them to know the speed. I don't want them guessing at the speed. You know how hard you should be hitting this, right? So I could say, hey, look, you've hit this uh, 11 footer 10 times heads up and 10 times head down, but all separated with other putts in between. So now I can look, how good is your speed control? Speed control is much better heads up, no surprise. You see significant, this is important, you see significant degradation in impact spot variability. People start to hit it all over the face, but guess what? It doesn't make any difference. The, the, the worst person in my lab, and you can, you can he audibly hear it hitting like about a centimeter off either side of the face. Blank. When I put heads up, I can feel it. I can feel the putter twist. Yeah. Does, ha has so little effect. I'm sinking putts knowing that I mishit it. Um, there's a great wow. uh, study by Carlson showing that you can be, it's like 1% of rollout distance. It just, it just doesn't matter that much. The range of variability for the average amateur in terms of how they spray it around the face gets completely washed out when you're putting heads up by that increased speed control um, path. You can be off the planet with, and it's not yeah. going to affect your putt within the range of what golfers do in terms of path variability. Yeah. And, and there's, there's not much difference in face angle variability because wow. you, you have that square grip and yeah. looking at something doesn't help us square the face. When you consider that face angle variability for a 30 foot putt is the same as face angle variability for a 300 yard drive, um, then you start to realize, huh, maybe I don't need to be looking down at this thing to make sure the face is square. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and there's so many benefits. It, 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 then I started looking at golfer movements. So the head stays more still, it's more repeatable, there is a, there was a, a researcher, Timothy Lee, uh, also from Canada, who does some putting stuff. And he found that the best putters have this, uh, what he calls um, an allocentric head movement. So your head, as the putter goes back, the head slightly moves towards the target. And as you swing forward, the head slightly moves back. Very, very small amounts. But that pattern is more evident in people who putt heads up. Um, so the head's more still. But when it does move, it moves more with this improved pattern. Um, and because people aren't looking up to see where the yeah. ball goes. And you've also taken away all worry about mechanical thoughts, right? You're just like, you're focusing there. all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's reacting like, to a target. Yeah. yeah. Now, now I do not push this on any players. Like I, you know, I um, uh, work with a McKenzie tour player who's a great putter and it's never even come up in conversation. Some people have a great ability to remember how far away the hole is. You could yep. probably, you know, that the famous putt tiger sank, um, uh, on, on 17, um, on the Island green, yep. you could probably, sawgrass. yeah, sawgrass. You could probably have shut the lights out, boom, just blindfolded them, 
just before he took the putter back, brought him out there three days later and in the dark and said, all right, hit the putt. And he would have remembered how far away it was. But unfortunately, there's a lot of people that don't have that ability. So it's worth exploring. You know, yeah. it's, it's worth giving it a shot. Have you guys tried it? I've tried it quite a lot in my garden out of interest. It is, it's... I can you assure have, you I'll be trying it right over here. Yeah. Have you tried it, Lou? I know you're oh, really yeah. into it. Yeah, I, I've tried it. And it's, um, I, I really um, love that video because it, it, um, I'd, I'd love to hear more about your putting lab and your robot. But it, it, one of the big takeaways that I, I had from that was our path. Eh, most players are going to be within tolerance where path isn't going to be an issue. Um, and check your face angle. As long as your face angle is within a certain tolerance, it's, probably not going to be your face angle and everything just kind of came back to speed. And I, I know heads up was a big part of what you were talking about there, but there was a lot to be learned in that. So if you're a putting junkie like me, um, it's a 2015 Met section, Sasha McKenzie, just Google that. It's like an hour and yeah. 10 minutes or so. And it's definitely worth the watch. There's a lot of great information in there. Yeah, if you put Met PGA section in there, it'll come up. Um, I actually had a question from the same video. Yeah, <laughs> going to pepper so the, the one question that I had because I went through the whole straight back, straight through arc, trying to think of the actual physics of it. When I read Pels's book seventeen years ago, I was like, that makes sense. And I actually cut holes in in the front of a shirt, put a shower cotton uh, curtain rod through it, and actually stood in a door jam so I could get my shoulders working straight up and down. Um, yes, I'm a lunatic, but. And then after once I realized that once we're just taking the exact same idea and then putting the spine on a tilt, it can operate in the exact same fashion and it becomes arcing. The only reason I bring that up is in that video, you talk about zero face and zero path. And I think of zero path as meaning straight back and straight through. I assume you don't mean that though. You just mean at the actual impact interval. Yeah, that's right. You know, I think in order to keep the putter moving straight back, straight through, it is actually requires a much higher level of coordination. No doubt. Um, I, I do the simple example. It doesn't work very well in audio, but everybody could try it. If you were like going to tap a button on the screen that's in front of you and you, and you're like, all right, well, I do the example of if the world's going to blow up, right. And every, what was the name of that, um, series, the Island lost, lost, lost. Yeah. they had to hit that button. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So if you had to do that and, you know, you had to like ha have your finger crossed back through a laser line and back to the button and you'd be like, all right, if you miss the button, you know, the world blows up. Well, you, you might say to yourself, I want my finger to move in a straight line, right? That's going to be the most repeatable way to do that. And then you look and you go, well, how many joints is it required to move my finger in a straight line? <laughs> we well, have to rotate your wrist, your elbow, and your shoulder. Mm. And, a lot and of each, of, each of those joints has multiple muscles. Whereas if you lock out your shoulder, lock out your wrist, and just do elbow, now you've got a tricep, bicep. And even if your timing's off, the finger is going to go through the exact same point in space. Yeah, it's going to be an arc. So your path is always changing. Your face is always changing. But even if the tricep and bicep go into like some kind of seizure, that finger is going to path, pass through the same points in space. Whereas if I'm trying to move my finger straight and any of those joint timings get off, now all of a sudden it's cast. Now I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm just saying, mm, you start to think about it. It's not simpler. What, what that's you, the whole reason. You know, yeah. that's, that's the reason I wanted to ask in case people do go watch that video is I definitely was watching it thinking there's no way he's talking about straight back, straight through here. But it seems when you say zero path, at least to me intuitively, that's what it feels like. And so I just wanted to clarify that's not 
None. When you say zero path, then what are you actually measuring that? Is that literally just like the one inch of impact or like what does Not zero path even mean? At impact. So when that putter makes contact with the ball, what direction is the center of the face uh, traveling at? Yeah, exactly. Um, and so you could have a path. If you have a zero face, your path could be like two and a half one way or two and a half the other way. And it's going to, you're still going to sink that 12 footer. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, in that video, I give us stats like, all right, well, let's take a look at the variabilities of these things. Right. And it'd be like the worst putter in my lab would miss one out of a hundred putts because of a bad path <laughs> from yeah. 12 feet, yeah. from 12 feet. Yeah. You know, That's the Billy Mayfair rule. I mean, obviously we've all seen that guy. The other thing that, place. you know, I think is really important from that. And it's, it's the variability of the surface and how much that impacts putts falling in and, and going offline. Um, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I, I want to say it was up to like 50% uh, of an impact on longer putts. I, it, it was your, uh, your, your session. So hopefully you remember that. And I didn't just put you on the spot. No, there's been uh, Cochran and Stobbs did it first and granted their greens might've been a bit dicey, but then Pels did it. And uh, a couple of researchers, uh, they, they've got a book called how golf clubs really work Warner and Grieg. And it, it was, they all had different distances. So this could be a bit off, but it was like from, from 30 feet, it was like 50% of the putts are going to go in uh, are going to miss because of green irregularities on good greens. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's very, very meaningful. Um, it's that's something that's completely out of your control, right? Uh, which makes a lot of sense when you look at some of the, the tourist putting stats, which is why I would say, I don't care <laughs> since I'm on your podcast, I'll, I, I've got this huge pet peeve with, uh, USGA RNA trying to constrain, uh, the way you should swing a golf club. I, I'd love to know the history of it. I'm not a huge history buff. Uh, with with golf but I feel like somebody didn't like Sam Snead and when he putted croquet style it wasn't the fact that he was putting croquet style it was like they didn't like Sam Snead they're like you know what we're gonna stick it to the man here um golf's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years and I'm sure the shepherds were you know playing it between their legs when it's innovative you (laughs) the best thing about golf is watching people wow what a cool shot that was you flip the club over you know to me punching (laughs) it between your legs is no different than Tiger going underneath that bush a couple of years ago and playing it left-handed from his knees. It's like that, that was so neat. Yeah, know? but Sasha, artistry, you've got to just, just say that word and then everything's clear. Everyone, based on this last uh, nuts. Based you, on the you last can't open this can of worms on this podcast. This now is <laughs> never ending. <laughs> We'd like to introduce Sasha McKenzie, our fourth host moving forward. <laughs> <laughs> We uh, are also trying to get our heads around the RNA and USGA and some of the ideas, but yeah, I'm interested. Where do you stand then on the um, reduction of shaft length? If you can be quick on that subject or not, I don't know. But it, as it, in, it, it's a 46 inches. Do you care? You don't care? It, it, again, it it's ma- limiting, isn't it? It matters so little that I don't care. Leave it at 48, right? It's like, um, it. You know, Phil's got a decent point. Might allow you to swing easier um, and hit at the same distance. Um, but it's it's almost immaterial. It's it's going to add a few extra yards, but you're going to have increased dispersion. It's going to give more fitting options is what it's going to do. It's going to allow someone who uh, is uh, Tom Watson, um, you know, at the British Open, he might have decided to play a 48-inch driver and compete with um, Bubba Watson, who's probably for the rest of his life going to play a 44-inch driver with a really heavy head. Yeah. Um, you know, that's all it's doing is it's accommodating more people. 
Um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> like, like, I, don't, I, I don't understand why it's a problem now. That makes me think, well, these people that we trust to protect this sacred land of ours, which is golf. Well, they've just got they've just admitted they've just been getting it wrong. For X period of time. I mean, what else are they doing apart from eating bacon sandwiches? Like, like you, you got one job, dude, like look after the rules. But all of a sudden now, hang on, guys, this rule, we got this one wrong. What about quickly then? I can't be quickly, but what about the knee drop? That's literally what I was about to say. It was the, the knee, knee drop. drop. Like, has any, like I did some <laughs> social posts around knee drops, the normal drops when it was happening. And there were passionate people like, oh, oh it'll be so much better. It won't roll as... As, as, as the needle moved in any way with that change, I know the needle moved in the sense that they had to rewrite the books and they had to rewrite the rules and they probably have to have, I guess, lawyers and the rest present because the rules of golf are written like law. Um, I just, it, the it people didn't... we're trusting to make these decisions, <laughs> that's what they're worrying about. Well, it like, didn't. It didn't make any sense. It's supposed to make it easier. It's stand. It's put your harder. Arm, stand straight up. Put your arm at your side. Drop the ball would make the most sense. And no one has to think about it. Yeah, it's yeah. harder. And you feel like I had a couple of knee drops on the weekend. And it was get like close is that to my knee. Foot. Yeah, and I'm always worried. Like in order to to get to my knee height, I bend my ankle, and then I'm like, well, wait a minute. Now it's not my. You're knee not allowed height. to bend. Um, <laughs> You're not allowed to bend. <laughs> so yeah, you know what? Like I, I would love to take a stab at. Uh, well, I already I kind of got a partial draft going of rewriting the rules. What? Why are there different club lengths for different situations? You know, like. Like you have to, I have to remember these little like memory, uh, you know, what do you call cues where it's like, right. If, if I made the mistake, if I went in a hazard, I get two club lengths, but if I didn't make the mistake, I only get one. Well, that seems backwards, right? That's backwards. If I'm on a car path, it's not my fault, but I only get one club length. Oh, but you put it in the hazard. Now you get to, or the penalty area. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, it, it's, it's so it, it's, it's, it's why people don't play more competitive golf. It's a legit, um, issue how complicated the rules are and they're just not putting their effort in the right places yeah yeah i mean the the effort in the right places i think sums it up quite well it it amazes me some of the things that people think are problems because i mean that moves us on to things like arm lock putters like i mean it's just it's the limitingness or the limitness of it why why are we so keen to stop people having fun let's let's have a game i'm gonna have a party i'm gonna invite (sighs) you around and if any of you have fun There'll be a rule which I'll laminate and put on your table telling you to stop doing whatever you're doing that's making you have more fun at my party. Hello, this is, this is golf. <laughs> this is why I go back to the Sam Sneed because then that opened the door to say we could say how you're supposed to swing the club, yeah. right? And then and then once they put the anchoring band in, which is full of just illogical comments, they just you make stuff up. Well, this is an anchor. Well, you made up that term. What does that even mean? You know? Yeah. yeah. And then, and now that's in the vernacular and now other golfers go, well, that's arm locks and anchor. Yeah. You know, that's the Billy Horschel that that dude's anchoring uh, that cross-handed grip. Like I hate saying it, but where does it, where does it stop? I mean, well, and there's no evidence. I would argue that it makes you putt worse. Yeah, that's Um, that's the thing. Where's the evidence showing me that anchored putters, if we're going to use that term, makes you better? It might make a certain group of uh, golfers better, but equally, heads up putting might make a a certain group of putters better. Overlap versus interlock. Exactly. A fatter grip or a thinner grip. Why do we define that the term anchoring is bad, yet... I can go and give a lesson tomorrow and give someone a swing fork 
and they're better and they start hitting some better shots. That's allowed. But the other group of people who get their benefits from having a putter that's connected to their tummy, which was also fine. That's another rule that apparently they got wrong, but um, is now that's bad. It, it, it's preposterous sometimes. Hey, Mark, it's, imagine, imagine sorry, the rule, sorry. The rule This changes. isn't golf science now. This is golf brands. No, no, no. <laughs> and then I have a question for Sasha about something actual golf science. But yeah. imagine the rule changes the USGA would implement if they saw my swing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Could you imagine? Anyway, back last to golf question, science. Last question for, for uh, Lou. So, Can I get some uh, more time? You, this is kind of fun. Yeah, as yeah. you've heard, I've been uh, chasing distance. And distance is, um, if you want to... Uh, attract golfers, talk to them about distance. Everyone's interested in hitting it farther. As you know, uh, when you let off at the beginning of our conversation, you said you've been doing some research on footwear. I'm curious if you've done footwear research around distance. And if there's things on the table for somebody like me, who's been trying to get faster uh, that I can look to, to help me get faster. Yeah. Um, where, yeah, for sure. There, there probably is. Um, so I've done a lot of, uh, research with foot joy over the last, uh, it's almost been 10 years now, I guess. Um, and it, it started, um, uh, in my lab, uh, in Canada, people would come in with like their muddy, um, golf shoes from the fall. Cause I would start up some research in the winter and I'm like, well, this sucks. Uh, Hey, you know, foot joy, can you send me some shoes? And in fact, would you mind sending me uh, two models? Um, so if, if I'm doing a driver uh, study and they're taking 36 swings, well, there's no reason why we can't switch it up every nine swings, they switch shoes. Um, and so then I'd go, uh, it wouldn't be part of the biomechanics research I would do at the university, but then on Saturday, I would go home and say, Hey, I wonder if I uh, run some stats and sort this data and see if one shoe did better than the other. In usually one foot joy model didn't do better than the other, but there would be certain players that would play better in one foot joy shoe model than the other. And so then, okay, send me two more. And then after the, the second time, I was like, okay, I'd have some of the same participants would come in and I would notice, hey, Scott seemed to perform better in both the hyperflex and the really? DNA, you know, so like what's going on here. So I actually um, then decided to, uh, to, to, to try and figure out if there was a way just using um, at the time I was doing research with body track, to use data from just a pressure mat. Um, if you could pull out the variables. So, so what I did was um, I pulled out about, uh, I was about 140 variables, anything I could get from the pressure mat, time of downswing, velocity of center pressure, all this stuff. And I did what's called a discriminant function analysis, where I know I would use strokes gained as the primary measure for how well they performed in those shoes. So I know what your strokes gained off the T was um, in model A and strokes gained off the T was in model B. And then this, what this discriminant function analysis does is it figure out, well, which of these pressure mat variables discriminates between these groups who perform better in this shoe and who perform better in that shoe. Um, and presented to foot joy and they were skeptical as they should be. Um, cause I was, you know, no, I was nobody and kind of crazy guy in Canada. And then they had, uh, their little lab called the shoe box. Um, and they collected data on, um, I think it was 140 golfers where they had both the ball flight and the mat data, but they just sent me the mat data. So they're like, Hey, all right, classify it you know what you're doing, classify these 140 golfers. So the way the discriminative function analysis work is you'd feed in the, the, it was four initial variables, four variables that I narrowed it down to from the pressure mat. So you'd 
fire those into the equation. And it, the, I had the equation set up. So it would go from a plus three to a minus three. If it was a plus three, that pushed you towards a structured shoe. If the number for you came up towards a minus three, that pushed you towards uh, a more mobile shoe. Um, and so there was an 89% match. Um, and then they ran it on tour players at Sea Island. So they had um, they had the quad running and the, the pressure mat, and they had all the tour players at Sea Island uh, swinging the icon. And I'm trying to think of, it might've been the DNA at the time. Uh, uh, no, it was the, um, yeah, it might've been the DNA. Um, anyway, and, and they matched um, in terms of uh, when, I, when you process the strokes gained for just the, the driver. So, um, uh, it didn't really, um, it was a tough thing to market, right? <laughs> you, yeah, really it, it, tough. Yeah. So at a green grass account to have a pressure mat and they're trying to sell tees and, you know, ring people in for golf carts to, if, Hey, you want a pair of shoes, try them on, but I don't have time to really go out in the range and have you hit balls on the, on the pressure mat so we can, we can fit you, but it was a great idea. Um, Long story short, if you have a, a, a very fast and aggressive swing, I'll give you, you know, two things that would push you to a certain model. A very fast and aggressive swing like John Rahm, you're going to want a more structured, stiff shoe. Um, uh, the caveat being, if, and this is, it seems kind of innocuous, but it, it came up time and time again, and it's a very important one. If you're the type of person that rolls over your uh, lead ankle like a Jordan Spieth, you, you really want to probably be in a mobile shoe. Uh, what we saw is people who, if you have that really rigid sole, it's almost like um, a, a, a fine line where it's like you're on your foot and then you roll over the ankle. Um, Adam Scott would not fall into that category, even though he gets way to his left side. He's got so much mobility. He stays flat footed. Um, guys like Justin Thomas wouldn't fall in there because they, they spin out on that front foot. It gets airborne and then it externally rotates, but guys like Jordan Spieth are, are, would be pushed more into a mobile shoe. You could see unbeknownst to the golfers, they really limited, uh, their pressure shift when they were in those rigid shoes, yeah. um, because it was very uncomfortable and unstable. And that really affected their whole swing. I'm pretty sure I've heard or seen stories of because you had Ricky Fowler wearing the boots for a little bit of time with Puma, didn't he? And they did some measurement of him hitting in them and they were affecting his movement. I mean, right, as you can imagine, I thought that a, was really... a shoe going up over the ankle. I mean, you give that to Jordan Spieth. He isn't going to be able to get through it at all, is he? I mean, he literally rolls his lead ankle yes. over. Yeah. Um, so you the put day him in, a, show that in was a basketball boot. Well, for him, it would just be preposterous to put him in that. It, it's going to limit one of the movements he's using to coordinate everything up and gain the speeds he gets. It's yeah. Matching yeah. the shoe to the player does see benefits. I've seen studies on it. I saw it with Under Armour. I've seen it with FootJoy. I've seen it with Swing Catalyst are doing some stuff on it. Um, so, so the most, the, 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 and the problem is that the most that I would see would be about strokes gained. If you look at like, say, best case scenario, 12 drivers per round over four rounds, it would be about two strokes over four rounds but that's meaningful sure massive um, yeah yeah, yeah. That's, dude that's fa you try, absolutely fascinating you try marketing that to a, a someone who's like hey you you will save yeah. a half well, a stroke other, yeah, <laughs> yeah like, exactly what, what the does other, that mean market that's trying it yeah, and we roll I, our I've, eyes at it i've worked in pro shops like your average amateur golfer has quite big variables trying to find half a shot is gonna take you like literally four months and yeah. i want them to buy that shoe like within 10 minutes and get out on the range and leave me alone it's a, it's a difficult one. Um, Scott, I'm sorry, Lou. So you need to think about your shoes, bruh. 
No, and, and that's really fascinating because I had like every other golfer out there, I have, I don't know, a dozen pair of, of golf shoes and most of them are structured as, as you, you called them structured, but I have two pair that are more like uh, just sneakers and they're yep. very loose and, and they're, and they're very breathable and I wear them on hot days. And uh, I always thought I was being ridiculously superstitious because I had a couple of bad rounds in one of those pairs. Um, and I'm curious as to what my differences would be uh, between shoes. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to mess around with that a little bit and, and uh, see what my numbers look like. Between uh, I can spy a test coming along there. I'm going to say not mutually, not mutually <laughs> exclusive. You can be both ridiculously superstitious and the shoes might be beneficial. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I think you do have some bad days as well, Lou, as I remember, I think. Uh, I the, don't know. The occasional bad day. The occasional bad day. <laughs> my, my two takeaways so far are I knew already how much time I wasted back in my 20s when I was playing professionally, but we can add to that now how many swings I did with a weighted club because if swinging at less than 90% of your stock uh, swing speed isn't helpful because the club's too heavy. Then you're wasting your time. I did that. God knows how many millions of times. And then those Pell's putter clips that you would be like, get the pro one on. I a hit strike. at least 47 million putts with those clips on my putter. And yeah. I felt like I was wasting my time the entire time. And now it's nice to confirm that it's, I was. So. It's been confirmed. This has uh, been uh, helpful. Yeah. I've got two questions and I want to vote for what my last two questions should be. Or what I want to ask one more question. And I've got two and I don't know which one to go with. I've got, where do we think gold science is going to go to round this up? That's one or the other one, because we had our little rant sesh and I didn't feel like we're finished is rollback. You decide, have a vote. Scott, what are you voting for? Ro should we roll back? I'm so sick of rollback. Where, where is golf science going? What, what do you want to finish golf with? science. Lou? I'm sick of Yeah, I'm back. good with whatever Sasha wants to talk about. I could listen to him oh, all day, so he can pick. Fence. Sasha, you choose. You can answer one of those questions. Rollback is a good idea or a bad idea, or where is golf science going to go in the future? You choose which one you want to answer. They should use golf science to study rollback is what they should do. Yeah. Oh, boom. Yeah, there I you like go. it. I like <laughs> it. Yeah. Can't we just use emotions and artistry? Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> You know, um, like I'm seeing a few apps at the moment where they're using video to measure 3D, which obviously is touching on your world, isn't it? I don't know if you've obviously you must have seen those and a few people are playing with that. Technology yeah, yeah. It's the sports box AI probably um, is probably one that looks the best to me. Um, and they seem to be getting the most traction. They've got uh, some some great people uh, uh, out on tour capturing swings. Um that to me, that's going to have um, it looks very promising for initial application to eye handicappers for sure. Um, to be able to say it just looks cool to be able to spin the the thing around. You're probably going yeah. to get more engagement. Um, uh, you don't have to put anything on, and if you have some gross movement patterns, like they're focusing on pelvis to torso, torso turn, that kind of stuff, um, that can be helpful. You can pull up, hey here's Bryson. He's at this, you're at this. Let's see if we can change that number for you. The same as you would use a, a launch monitor. That's like the best thing about launch monitors. When they started out, they were always easy. Yeah. It was ball goes oh, down. Go. There's, there's yeah. no triggering. Yeah. There's no nothing. You swing and there's the data. 
Um, that that's always the trouble with a lot of other systems. It's like, okay, well, is it zero? Does it calibrate it? Do I, okay, wait, I got to hit record. Oh, it wasn't ready. The launch monitor drop whack. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, because and there's that, been lots of body, isn't there? I mean, you've had KVS. I've used KVS for years. It's a great product, but the you know it, it wouldn't work sometimes. You know, because something's interrupting it. You got gears, but it's got to be fixed, and it's very expensive. But it's a great product. You got AMM, which was obviously loads of wires at one point. I know you can get wireless now, and then software support was not maybe as good because the company had different. You know, there's be, they that that world has never quite gone to where the launch monitor world is which the launch monitor world has definitely touched so many golfers isn't it yeah so so i could see just having your camera set up um and you're taking swings and it's it's got the 3d ready to go every time you hit a ball um and you can go in and just check those angles now caveat i think if you're comparing yourself to bryson then you'll probably be able to see those differences um some things that I would, you know, what I would like to be able to do to test it out, which anybody could test out is, um, let's say you and Scott both have the app on your phone, film the same swing from both the same angle to get the same numbers. So it's going to be, it's going to be tough for them to, it's going to be a high bar and it's, there's going to be a lot of people checking the data, you know, um, and some, my initial questions are they're showing the angles and stuff. You're going to want to see clubhead speed. That's the first thing people are going to want to spit that out. You know, okay. Do I trust the angle, but you can't give me clubhead speed. Um, uh, yeah. so, but it, it's eventually going to get there. The, the markless motion capture is going to be at a point where it, it will be the number one way to, to give instruction. I don't think I will be around when you're going to be able to necessarily use it to tell like the way I use AMM now Yeah. with a skilled user, like a John Sinclair, who has a lot of tour players go through. Yeah. So we've been going back and forth now for a lot of years and he sends me data from players. Okay. This is what they were doing five years ago, four years ago, three years ago. And we can pick up the differences because he has the system set up appropriately. He's got the same testing conditions and I can see the changes in the data. Um, I'm not, it's the same problem with all tech, isn't it? We want people want consumer ready and consumer ready. I mean, even golf pros want it consumer ready. The people yeah. who are going to be in the field using it, but we want your lab quality data. And those two worlds <laughs> just don't really ever, because if, if it's that accurate, it's going to cost lots of money basically yeah. is the general pattern because even launch, because you've got the, the, you know, the desire now is is people are hungry for home launch monitors, but no one can or will make one that will obviously take away from what those launch monitor companies have and want to do, which is sell a product at a high ticket price because it is accurate. And so I use quad. It's got four high speed cameras in there. They're, they're not cheap. I, I, I work with cameras every day and high speed cameras are not cheap. I mean, high speed is one of the things that people think their iPhone does high speed, like it does high speed, but the resolution is shocking. Like it's, it's good that it's in your pocket, but you can't study with that. You can do some fun tricks. That, that delicate mold of getting it. So us idiot golf pros can use it. It's accurate and it's priced right. So we can get it into users hands is just, it's only launch monitors. And then like video software, swing catalyst, you mentioned gasp earlier. Yeah. They're the only people who have really managed to do it, I think. Yeah, I think that that there's the next big thing for me will be a low cost launch monitor with ball spin. Yeah, um, you know, there, there, there's it used to be the ball flight model um, was the limitation. So Ping uses their own ball flight model. 
Yeah. Nothing, nothing tragic with quads model, but indoors, uh, ping yeah. gets the ball launch spin and speed data and then use their own ball flight model. They trust it, but they got the ball dynamic fitting yeah. system out that's yeah. based around that, that, um, ball flight model engine. I, I think the game changer for me will be when the, when a, you know, $1,000 launch monitor comes out that gives you decent spin and that yeah. some smart PhD student, um, uh, this, the way ping did, you know, Paul Wood created the ball flight model for, uh, for ping and it's been iterated now. Chris Brody's, you know, changed a few things. Um, Mark Brody's son is who's at ping and it's, it's a very awesome model, but there's no reason why someone else can't do that working for a thousand dollar launch monitor. They just, we just need that ball spin, the speed and the launch. If you look at the Rapsodal MLM or, you know, a lot of those units, I got the Garmin G, I got a ton of them that I, that, they're not that, bad. are they? They're not bad. The speed yeah. and the launch angle are really, really good. And then you get some wacky stuff with carry because they don't have spin. So yeah. if someone figures out that that spin and they paired up with a decent ball flight model. And you know what? It's so easy now to to, to, to go, uh, hit a ton of balls on a track, man, and figure out their ball flight model. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? So someone, yeah, yeah. someone could just hit enough shots. You're going to get it out. Aren't you? If you want to grind it out, you could, yeah. you can figure out what your what you can dial in. It doesn't even have to be an actual physics equation. It can just be statistical model. Like, Hey, this yeah. is the spin launch and speed. This is where the ball goes. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Straightforward. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and so that, that, that's going to be probably, I, I'm what I'm looking for for the next biggest piece of tech, because for me, the, the biggest piece of equipment that any t- player or coach can have is a decent launch monitor for practicing. Um, t- to me, that's, that's a big limitation for guys on mini tours um, trying to make it is that if you, having a launch monitor and decent range balls to practice with is a massive advantage, you know, yeah. to, to really know your dispersion, to know if your dispersion's changing, to know your yardages, how, how good was your practice session? It, you know, it's important for like even someone like me trying to win my club championship. It, it, um, it quantifies something that's very hard to quantify, basically, doesn't yeah. it? And if it, you choose to save and use that data, as Scott and Lou both do, obviously, when it comes to decade ideas, it allows you to have an advantage over someone who's not doing it, basically, doesn't it? Yeah. The point that I'd like to make on that, only because I have to work bifurcation into this t- conversation somehow. I was the one that was rolling my eyes at the whole idea of, of, of distance. But what Sasha is saying there, my, my whole contention always with bifurcation is the guys, when they graduate from college and play the NCAAs is usually the first week of June. And yeah. then they've got about two and a half months to get ready, you know, to, to use their starts in order to make the FedEx cup playoffs or not. And at that point, then their starts are burned and people who don't understand bifurcation, they're like, well, they'll figure it out, dude, rolling the ball back 10%, rolling the spin amount, 10%, whatever it is, is an adjustment period, period. And just to hear a guy like Sasha say, the importance of having a launch monitor and good range balls, if that, and I agree, is super important to playing your best golf, there's just no doubt that, I'm not going to say they can't break 80, but they're not going to be one of the 50 best players in the world. They're already not one of the 50 best players in the world, and they've got seven starts to make enough money. Bifurcation doesn't work for those reasons, in my opinion, and I think it would just artificially age the PGA Tour, and there's no reason to do that. I would like to see, because I'm... I'm just inherently curious and and I think it would be a great marketing tool. Uh, we have a ton of eyeballs. If, if there was an event, maybe in the fall where they said, right, here's the ball we're playing, who's coming. Um, 
And, and it was like, everybody's got to play this ball. And I, it would just be really interesting, be interesting. to watch. Right. Like, and, and I, th- mm. I think a lot of, I mean, I, I haven't listened to your, your podcast enough guys, sorry, but I have a, an idea where it's going based on social media yeah. and you would see guys that are, you know, hitting a 270 off the tee be in big trouble. If, you had, trouble. <laughs> if you had a ball uh, that was going to, you know, carry a lot less. I mean, yeah, it would be an interesting event and it would be something that hopefully would highlight the complexities of that idea where often certainly on social people want to simplify it so much, isn't it? Oh, just roll it back or just, you know, give the pros a a certain ball. I mean, if you're going to talk bifurcation, I mean, the beauty with golf is that I grew up as a 12 year old playing golf and wanted to play golf for a living. That's what I wanted to do. So from 12 onwards, I'm learning my trade. I'm using the ball. I'm using ideas that will get me to play hopefully one day it didn't come off obviously but with with the best players in the world if they're playing a different game than i'm playing at what age do i decide to try and learn the game that i want to play that i don't know that i might have a chance to play and i disassociate myself with the game that governs my handicap that allows me to get to the game i want to get to like it's ridiculous it's such a can of worms if you are a standard club golfer and you don't think that way i can understand why you think it'll work but just roll them back roll them back it's silly i don't i want to see longer clubs yeah that's fine for your personal slippers on viewing golf on telly that's fine i get that but all those hundreds and thousands of kids around the world who are learning that trade john ram just didn't become a tour player oh i'm gonna be a tour player tomorrow bang tour player he became a tour player from the day he was born. Everything he did from his parents' help for their encouragements to the opportunities, even through to the skills he learned playing with the game that they play on tour, all worked towards him becoming the player he became. To separate, to draw a line in the sand there and separate those two games. Well, unless someone can, I, I'm, I'm open for ideas. And if someone can educate me how that works, I'm cool. I'll, I'll go with it. But at the moment, I just see that as one of the biggest disasters golf would ever have to draw that line. It would, it would be crushing. It, it's, not, it's not like team sports where you have people playing on a team and there's clear transitions. Guys are going up and down all the time. You've got 14-year-olds playing at US Opens. You've got, yeah. it, would, it, would be, it would be very challenging. Uh, you know, <laughs> my golf course is about 6,500 yards. If you play it, you know, from the regular yeah. tees, we have 680 members. The first hole, there's a bunker that's 220 to carry. And there's probably 5% of the golfers <laughs> at my club that can carry it. Um, you nope. know, it, it, we, uh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a plus two pretty decent golfer shoot under par a lot. And the 73, 74, uh, won the club championship. It was windy. Yeah. Um, well, that's the thing. Lou put some great posts with amateur events, don't you, Lou? Where you look at like the amateur events. Have you? Let's, golf is not easy for most people. Like for anyone, it's pretty yeah. hard. You know what I mean? I play with my regular foursome. Is three guys that are around sixty, and yeah. th- it, it, Nova Scotia. There's a lot of cold days, wet days, um, and they have a lot of three woods into par fours 400 yeah. yard par fours yeah um all the time and the the game gets exponentially more fun for them when we hit august and the fairways get a little Run firmer yeah. the air gets a little warmer and now they can hit five irons six irons seven irons the, yeah. and these are decent athletes it when they're going to be playing their most golf in their 60s yeah. 
you know? They are, they're obviously not on Twitter because everyone on Twitter hits at three 30 and they're plus four, especially my followers. So I, these guys can't be on Twitter. It's just, I did that yeah. logic. You know, I'm really interested. Like you talked about launch monitors and how important they are. I'm interested to see where, and I'm holding my phone up right now. It's an iPhone where that takes us over the next five to 10 years as the camera continues to advance as LIDAR continues to advance with what they package up in, in the iPhone and how people are going to be able to use that the challenge um, 10 years oh, from God, now. Sorry. I mean, with, with, with what we have today, uh, I mean, it's, it's, remarkable how much it's advanced from 10 to 15 years ago. A high-speed camera, a a portable high-speed camera in my lab 15 years ago was $20,000. And now my iPhone 12 um, is far superior to the the speed and the image quality that it could capture. That's unreal. Quad (laughs) does, yeah, it is unreal. Quad does an amazing, amazing job with their cameras at getting spin rate. it's really quite crazy to me. It's, it's some kind of modern miracle that they can, without markings on the ball, they can look at dimples and figure that out. But it makes me think that now when I look at my iPhone and I see, uh, you know, a couple of cameras looking out at me, um, that, you know, probably Apple, if they wanted to in the next two weeks could say, yeah, we could do that. Let's just, uh, put a little, little, you know, um, no, no, not taking anything away from the folks at uh, foresight, but, um, you know, that, that would be pretty cool uh, to, to set your phone down and get some, some spin on launch data. I think yeah, that with absolutely. The, the, the work that, that I did be on amazing. it, because launch angle, both in trajectory and towards a target, that's just not that hard to do with trigonometry and LIDAR. It needs to be a little bit faster refresh rate in order to cover it. But I do think that the first iteration of it, because we tried to do it, I don't think it'll be in a phone. I think it'll be a separate device about the size of a phone that has both a high-speed camera and can combine that with the LiDAR. That'll just be a super small because you've got to get the spin rate. I feel like that's the one thing. Was Bushnell partnering with with Foresight? They've got a product coming very soon. Yeah, yeah. Foresight, and that's a home use. I think it's a home use. Yeah, yeah. We were it is coming. Yeah, we were trying to do it with the lidar from an iPhone 12. It's just not quite good enough. But it just if an entire phone has lidar on it, it costs six hundred dollars. A really badass lidar and great camera, like you can get that. I believe you can get that down to about a grand, and it be pretty functional. That's I, I, definitely where I think it'll be. I want to ask one question because we did. I did throw out on Twitter uh any questions for Sasha and and I tried to work the questions in with where I went with my other questions but I do think this one because it's it's really counterintuitive to me um but a guy asked does it make sense to work towards slower slash less face rotation from p6 through eight a la DJ and Hovland does that potentially equate to more control because that's definitely something to me intuitively that when I watch Javi especially and I'm just like dude that 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 toe just looks like it never turns over. It is just so squared the arc. But then I read or read, I watch some of Sinclair stuff and it just doesn't seem like, like uh, the closure rate actually correlates to control, which seems insane to me. But yeah. what, what do you know about that? Yeah, I, I know a lot about it. Hovland does have one of the lowest rates of closure. Um, of any, he does have the lowest that I've ever measured. Um, so I, I like to, I have multiple ways to measure rate of closure. Probably the easiest way is degrees per foot. Um, okay. Cause then that, that, then that erases um, 
the fact that you're, if you're swinging faster or slower degrees per moment, like foot of the impact interval, right at degrees of feet. So how, if this continue, it's instantaneous, but if this club continued to travel for a foot doing what it's doing right now, how many degrees would it close? As opposed to the 2,300 degrees a second that I've seen or heard before. What does that number come out to for like a guy like Javi? Um, Yeah, probably like uh, 1,800 would be off the top of my head. So what's quad measuring in distance with their rate of closure? Do you know? Uh, Because I see figures around like three and a half, four, Uh, eight thousand. Because obviously you're doing it over a different period of time there, aren't you? I guess. Well, I'm doing it instantaneously. Um, Okay. I, you know, it's, uh, it's fine. I just, if you don't know, you don't know. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm not really sure exactly what quads up to with the, the rate of closure um, stuff. Um, yeah. So but, Hovland has a low rate of closure. But does working, does working towards that actually, is that something that people should work towards? Cause again, I mean, that matches up his other movements though. Sure. There, there's, there's, there's no evidence to suggest that that's yeah. the case. So, so, um, I, I do, you know, uh, a few driver studies every year and I have a range of players. Hey, this guy's got, like, I've got guys that come in my lap. Everybody, like Scott, you, you probably a plus strokes gained off the tee relative to a tour player. Uh, maybe your putting's good, but I'm just guessing because you hit the ball pretty good. Right. So, Hey, there's a guy That's like you I kick can it. do. <laughs> yeah. So there's a guy like you kicking around Anaganish and he's like, a, you know, a plus like a tour player level. Um, there's a few of them. Uh, game off the tee when there's no pressure sitting in a lab. Right. Um, and then I've got people who sprayed all over the place and you go, okay, well, let's take a look at these 40 people and let's compare the rates of closure to their dispersion or to their strokes gained. And it's a shotgun blast. Yeah. Um, and, and ping has way more data than me collected with Enzo. And it's the same story. You can go, okay, on the X axis, let's have um, handicap. And then we'll have rate of closure in the y-axis. It is a shotgun pattern. There are tour players that have rates of closure of 3,500 who are plus with the driver. And there are uh, 20 handicappers who are 3,500. And likewise with low rates of closure. And, you know, driving is not the same as putting. But to me, the principle would apply the same. If you have a high rate of closure with the putter, fundamentally, it's the same idea, right? This thing's whipping fast, closing through impact, and you will have more variability in face angle at impact. Not the case. Um, it's a shotgun blast with putting. Now, that is a lot of evidence to say that it's probably not worth looking at. I'm going to continue to look at it because there could be something that, that, that we're missing. Um, but... Uh, you know, specifically speaking, it doesn't mean that if you take someone with a high rate of closure and turn them into someone with a low rate of closure, that they don't get more accurate. But usually if a cross section of correlation, you know, that that's not there probably means that's not going to happen. Like, for example, we know that higher club head speed means more strokes gained off the tee. Um, and if I improved your club head speed, you would see more strokes gained off the tee. So it, it should hold. So I'm not, you know, it's really, probably worth going out and doing that said i don't think it's a bad thought or feeling or swing thought yeah you know and i i can you know i'm doing playing around enough in my lab i can certainly have feelings that feel like a lower closure and it's higher um but i can also manipulate it quite a bit i can figure it out johnson claire is a guy who can change his rate of closure and hit the exact same shot Really? Um, yeah. And I, I, I'll, I can share a video on social media after this, but he can take a six iron and hit the same shot. And the rates of closure are as different as you would see across any golfer. 
um, which is pretty impressive. And in fact, yeah. he'll, he'll, he'll hit the, the higher rate of closure with a fade and the low rate of closure with a draw, which is usually something that most people would think don't. was the other way around, wouldn't they? Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's really, you know, there's not a whole lot there. Um, yeah. That's yeah. so interesting because it sure does seem intuitively like there would be, well, man. I, well, this, it's this, just this, crazy. This is where I think about, think about the big picture. I said this earlier in the podcast and it's something that a lot of people need to hear your rate of closure on a 30 foot putt, uh, your face, sorry, your face angle variability on a 30 foot putt is the same as your face angle variability with a driver. Swing as hard as you can with all your joints going, that club is way up over your head and the putt you're taking it back a foot and a half. Everything's controlled so, so what, when, when we're saying, when we're saying, let's make our, we're reducing our rate of closure. We're trying to say, let's make it more repeatable. Let's make it simpler. Well, okay, let's make it simpler. Let's, I'm not even going to rotate my hips. I'm going to not even flex my wrists. I'm going to you do everything. And eventually you get down to a putting stroke and you still have the same yeah. variability in face angle. The whole point of reducing rate of closure would be to reduce Juice your variability in face angle. Yeah. And it's you, just so incredible to me. Like if I only because I know you, if I didn't know you, I'd be like, this guy's literally making stuff up right now. Just, <laughs> <laughs> like, I was so I was so excited to talk to Sasha, and the guy's just totally full of it. Yeah, Eric Henriksen. So incredible. Eric Henriksen at Ping and I have had this back and forth. So once every once in a while, you know, we'll collect some data and I'll be like, hey, you'll be like, hey, what's your what's your face to path variability with that, you know, putter study. And I'll be like, well, the best is, you know, this of all that. So if you look at the best face to path variabilities with the driver, they're about the same as the best face to path variabilities with the putter. That's <laughs> just wow, unbelievable. Wow. Some people yeah. have it reversed. Yeah. Yeah. So, so are you ever going to be able to constrain your driver swing enough so that it's like a putt yet you can still get 110 mile an hour club head speed? No. So to yeah. me, that's, the, that's like an overarching kind of guiding yeah. thought perspective. I'm like, ah, maybe. I wish I could do that. That would be a big help to my game. <laughs> and, then, and then here's another, here's a, here's another a thought that I use to help people sort through the importance <laughs> of this rate of closure. Uh, imagine you, you know, like being off a degree sucks in golf, right? Yeah. Let's even say two degrees. So you can put the driver down, open and close the face two degrees. That is tiny. Like you're looking at it and you're like, oh, I'm barely moving this, right? But yet that's off the planet now if you're swinging at 110 miles an hour, right? Yeah. So even if your rate of closure is zero, if you could make that swing, but just as you start down, your wrist is just a little bit this way or that way. So now the face is closed two degrees from where it was the previous swing, but you have zero rate of closure you're still screwed when you get to impact, even if you yeah. have zero rate of closure, just because you, you, the club face is up here behind you. What are the odds that you're going to put that face in the exact same position every time? And now if you have zero rate of closure on the way down, screwed. Can you, can you say yeah. it just to make Joe Mayo's head explode before we leave? Well, that's how these players save it with their hands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a name from the past there. Good old Joe. I miss you, Joe. Where's he gone? He'll be back on Twitter any oh, day yeah. now, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure about that. There we go. Well, I'm going to end it there, guys, before we ask any more questions about rollback and things. I felt like that pod had some good, some good rants in it, as well as some baseline science as well. Don't, don't you think? How do you think, Lou? Did we do all right? 
We did all right. We'd love to have yeah. you back anytime, Sasha. You're always yeah, welcome. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for your time, Sasha. Cool. And th- thanks for everyone who's listening. Um, if you've got any questions, maybe hit us up on our social channels. If you want to check out the Stack system, uh, they've got a website. I think it's at, is it www.stack.com, I would presume, without looking at it. but Or just the, search. Thestacksystem.com. The stack. And, and our Instagram is pretty cool. So yeah, check out the, our Instagram. Absolutely. There we go. Is it's it the Stack system product. also? Yeah, the Stack system. Yeah. There we go. And hopefully a little bit of golf science mixed in with a little bit of artistry and and ranting was exactly what you wanted to listen to. Thanks for listening. Sweet. Thanks, guys.